You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can find the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll find a link there to send me a message. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece written by Olivia Rosan. This is published at ecowatch.com. U.S. consumers are exposed to more than 5,000 times more bisphenol A or BPA than EU considers safe. And that has prompted environmental groups to petition the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, to rescind its approvals for the chemical commonly used in food packaging. The petition, filed on January 27, 2022, came in response to a European Food Safety Authority, EFSA, assessment of BPA, which determined that, quote, there is a health concern from dietary BPA exposure for all age groups. The FDA has an obligation to protect us from toxic chemicals that can come into contact with our food, petition co-author Maricel Maffini said. As The Guardian reported, these new findings should be a wake-up call to the FDA and all of us that our health is in jeopardy unless we take swift action to limit the amount of BPA that can come into contact with our food. BPA is commonly used to make plastic, and it was first approved by the FDA in the early 1960s, according to Very Well Health. It was last deemed safe by the FDA in 2008, but health experts have long had concerns about the chemical. Quote, Exposure to BPAs has been shown to interfere with how certain hormones function, such as estrogen, testosterone, thyroid, and others, family physician Dr. Krista Marie Coleman told Very Well Health. Additionally, they have been associated with fertility issues, cancer, and even cardiovascular disease. This new assessment from the EFSA calculated a new safety limit for BPA of 0.04 nanograms per kilogram of body weight per day. The petitioners wrote, according to the FDA's own calculations, the average U.S. resident over the age of two consumes 200 nanograms per kilogram of body weight per day or more than 5,000 times the new safety limit. Quote, Without a doubt, these values constitute a high health risk and support the conclusion that uses of BPA are not safe, the petitioners wrote. The petition was organized by a coalition of health experts and environmental groups led by the Environmental Defense Fund, according to The Guardian. The FDA now has 180 days to respond. BPA is commonly used as a lining in metal cans or as hard, clear polycarbonate plastic used for water bottles or food containers. EDF has had some success with FDA petitions in recent years, including one to ban long-chain PFAS in food packaging and another to ban seven carcinogenic food flavors. However, while the agency decides, there are things you can do to protect yourself very well health noted. These include 1. Limiting exposure to plastic packaged or canned foods. 2. Being aware that products marked BPA-free could still contain BPS, which is bisphenol S, a common substitute. 3. Steering clear of plastic containers that are heated in the microwave. 4. Finding out if your preferred brands have banned BPA and its substitutes. Until more information is known, it is important to take a precautionary approach by limiting exposure to these chemicals, especially when preparing or making certain foods, Coleman told Very Well Health. 
Next up is a piece published at TheGuardian.com written by Damien Carrigan. Microplastic pollution has been detected in human blood for the first time, with scientists finding the tiny particles in almost 80% of the people tested. The discovery shows the particles can travel around the body and may lodge in organs. The impact on health is as yet unknown. But researchers are concerned as microplastics cause damage to human cells in the laboratory, and air pollution particles are already known to enter the body and cause millions of early deaths a year. Huge amounts of plastic waste are dumped in the environment and microplastics now contaminate the entire planet, from the summit of Mount Everest to the deepest oceans. People were already known to consume the tiny particles via food and water, as well as breathing them in, and they have been found in the feces of babies and adults. The scientists analyzed blood samples from 22 anonymous donors, all healthy adults, and found plastic particles in 17. Half the samples contained PET plastic, which is commonly used in drinks bottles, while a third contained polystyrene, used for packaging food and other products. A quarter of the blood samples contained polyethylene, from which plastic carrier bags are made. Quote, Our study is the first indication that we have polymer particles in our blood. It's a breakthrough result, said Professor Dick Vethak, an exotoxicologist at Vries University, Amsterdam, in the Netherlands. But we have to extend the research and increase the sample sizes, the number of polymers assessed, etc. Further studies by a number of groups are already underway, he said. It is certainly reasonable to be concerned, Vethak told The Guardian. The particles are there and are transported throughout the body. He said in previous work, he said previous work has shown that microplastics were 10 times higher in the feces of babies compared with adults, and that babies fed with plastic bottles are swallowing millions of microplastic particles a day. Quote, we also know in general that babies and young children are more vulnerable to chemical and particle exposure, he said. That worries me a lot. The new research is published in the journal Environment International and adapted existing techniques to detect and analyze particles as small as 0.0007 millimeters. Some of the blood samples contained two or three types of plastic. The team used steel syringe needles and glass tubes to avoid contamination and tested for background levels of microplastics using blank samples. Vethak acknowledged that the amount and type of plastic varied considerably between the blood samples. Quote, but this is a pioneering study, he said, with more work now needed. He said the differences might reflect short-term exposure before the blood samples were taken, such as drinking from a plastic-lined coffee cup or wearing a plastic face mask. The big question is what is happening in our body, Vethak said. Are the particles retained in the body? Are they transported to certain organs, such as getting past the blood-brain barrier? And are these levels sufficiently high to trigger disease? We urgently need to fund further research so we can find out. The new research was funded by the Dutch National Organization for Health Research and Development and Common Seas, a social enterprise working to reduce plastic pollution. Quote, plastic production is set to double by 2040, said Joe Royal, founder of the charity Common Seas. We have a right to know what all this plastic is doing to our bodies. Common Seas, along with more than 80 NGOs, scientists and MPs, are asking the UK government to allocate £15 million to research on the human health impacts of plastic. The EU is already funding research on the impact of microplastic on fetuses and babies and on the immune system. A recent study found that microplastics can latch on to the outer membranes of red blood cells and may limit their ability to transport oxygen. The particles have also been found in the placentas of pregnant women, and in pregnant rats they pass rapidly through the lungs, into the hearts, brains, and other organs of the fetuses. A new review paper published on Tuesday, co-authored by Vithak, assessed cancer risk and concluded, quote, more detailed research on how micro and nanoplastics affect the structures and processes of the human body 
and whether and how they can transform cells and induce carcinogenesis is urgently needed, particularly in light of the exponential increase in plastic production. The problem is becoming more urgent with each day. And from contaminated blood to contaminated land, this next piece is about the uh, collapse of the cleanup system for mining, which is quite on par with the uh, collapse or failure of the cleanup systems for drilling of oil and natural gas. We let these companies profit off of the resources and we don't hold them accountable for cleaning up the messes that they make. Those cleanup costs, externalities, the capitalists uh, describe them as, are put onto the local and federal government. This piece is written by Dan Rodmacher and is published at InTheseTimes.com. The bankruptcy of Black Jewel LLC and its affiliates was on its own a very momentous event in the coal industry. Once the sixth largest coal producer in the nation, Black Jewel sent shockwaves through the industry and through coal communities from Virginia to Wyoming when it filed an early morning emergency petition in July 2019, kicking off the bankruptcy process. But as stunning as the Black Jewel bankruptcy was, more than two years later, the flaws it has exposed in the mine cleanup system may be even more important, according to a Sierra Club attorney. Quote, Black Jewel is significant for itself, attorney Peter Morgan says. It involved lots of permits. It affects lots of people. But its greatest significance is the way it illustrates how the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act, or SMCRA, regulatory program is totally broken and unprepared to deal with the state of decline of the coal industry. Quote, Black Jewel is not going to be an isolated incident. It is not an outlier. It is a bellwether. Black Jewel, its parent company Revelation Energy LLC and affiliated companies declared bankruptcy in July 2019, immediately throwing hundreds of miners out of work. Unlike previous coal company bankruptcies, Black Jewel shut down immediately and didn't continue to operate during the proceedings. The bankruptcy also left the fate of thousands of acres of scarred and polluted land up in the air. Reclamation is a process of fixing land damaged by surface mining. This includes getting rid of dangerous high walls, revegetating the land, and taking other steps to restore the site minimize the pollution it generates, and prevent hazards like landslides and retention pond failures. Under the Federal Service Coal Mining Law, SMCRA, and associated regulations, companies are supposed to reclaim the land as much as possible while mining is still ongoing. Essentially, mine operators are required to clean up their mess as they go. If a coal company that mines a site can't clean it up, Federal law requires the state mining agency to ensure reclamation is completed. States fund mine cleanup through a bonding program where money is often provided by a third-party company known as a surety. Surety companies essentially provide reclamation insurance to state regulators, guaranteeing payment of reclamation costs in exchange for fees paid by the coal company. If cleanup falls to the state, the state agency is supposed to be able to reclaim the site using the coal company's forfeited bond or money from a state bonding pool that multiple companies have contributed to. But with the number of coal company bankruptcies rising, the system is under increasing stress and it isn't clear who will pay to remediate the 200 or so mining sites abandoned in the Black Jewel bankruptcy. Quote, if sufficient bonds aren't available, it is likely that many of these sites will not be reclaimed, says Aaron Savage, a senior program manager at Appalachian Voices, the nonprofit organization that publishes the Appalachian Voice. As the sites decline, pollution and safety issues will increase. The costs created by these mines will fall onto nearby community members and taxpayers across the impacted states, unless state or federal programs are created to provide backup funding. 
Unlike previous coal company bankruptcies, Black Jewel, Revelation Energy, and their subsidiaries were unable to reorganize and emerge from bankruptcy. Instead, the companies ceased to exist at the end of 2021, after a final 90-day court deadline. Approximately 200 permits held by Black Jewel and its subsidiaries were not transferred from the bankrupt companies to others by the deadline, raising questions about the current status of those permits and who is currently responsible for maintaining the sites and addressing any problems. Appalachian Voices released an online tool in December to help track which permits have successfully transferred and which haven't. Reclamation of those abandoned permits should fall to the state and be funded by the coal company's forfeited bonds, the state bond pool, or money from the bond surety companies that guaranteed bonds for Black Jewel, according to Morgan. But Morgan says it doesn't appear that Kentucky sees it that way. The state mining agency has continued to process permit transfer applications even after the transferring companies, the companies named on the permits, were dissolved. Officials from Kentucky's Energy and Environment Cabinet did not respond to a request for an interview. Quote, two problems. That's not how SMCRA works. If you don't have a permittee, you don't have a permit anymore, Morgan says. The much bigger problem, though, is that the companies that have purchased the mines but haven't received a transferred permit have been allowed to operate them. Mines are being operated by companies that aren't permit holders. That may seem like a regulatory technicality, but permits are how state and federal regulators hold mine operators accountable to ensure they are maintaining and reclaiming mine sites. If a landslide happens on that permit, who's responsible? asked Mary Cromer, Deputy Director of Appalachian Citizens Law Center, a nonprofit law firm in eastern Kentucky that focuses on coal-related issues. The state hasn't taken over responsibility. The surety hasn't taken over responsibility. Who's responsible for daily maintenance to keep these sites safe and monitor pollution? The answers to these questions are important, but even when responsibility is clear, regulators haven't done a good job of holding mining companies accountable, which, for Black Jewel Mines, has made the current situation even worse. Coal companies are required to construct and maintain ditches and ponds in order to limit the impacts of stormwater runoff on adjacent land, waterways, and communities. These structures slow torrents of water during periods of heavy rain and allow silt and rock to settle out before runoff leaves a mine's boundaries. Ditches and ponds are also sometimes treated with chemical agents in order to mitigate discharges of harmful heavy metals and to neutralize acidity. When mine operators fail to regularly dredge these ponds and ditches, muddy and debris-filled stormwater can rush off mining operations, damaging ecosystems and threatening the safety of people living nearby. Quote, it was clear that Black Jewel had not been maintaining those permits even before it went into bankruptcy, Morgan says. A lot of these sites have mounting issues, particularly regarding sediment control. Sediment ponds are filling in with silt. Sediment ditches are overflowing. There have been landslides. Pollution controls aren't being maintained. According to Morgan, states like Kentucky have hesitated for years to strictly enforce reclamation regulations or ensure companies put up adequate bonding out of fear the cost might force the coal companies into bankruptcy and leave the state holding the bag. Quote, the state wanted to avoid that outcome at all costs, Morgan says. Now they're really facing the consequences. Unfortunately, states are continuing to push these consequences onto the communities that live around these sites and have to deal with these floods, landslides, pollution, and all the other nasty effects of unmaintained coal mines. Bobby Mitchell is one person living with these consequences. He lives downhill from the Eiley Branch Mine in eastern Buchanan County, Virginia. Rainwater picks up mud and debris from the mine site and drains into Dismal Creek, which runs between his home and the road. Black Jewel owned this mining complex, but following the bankruptcy, Civil LLC purchased the mine in 2020 along with two others. Residents near the Aili Branch Mine, including Mitchell, reported problems for several years before the bankruptcy, and the problems haven't gone away since Civil took over. Quote, Anytime it rains, this creek gets really big really fast, Mitchell says, and gets really muddy. 
There's a lot of runoff coming from somewhere. Mitchell is concerned about more than mud. I'm worried about those holding ponds up there, he says, referencing the sediment ditches that line the perimeter of most mountaintop removal mines. I'm afraid they're going to overflow like they did in the past. I'm concerned for my family's safety. The berms holding up those sediment ditches have failed before, sending logs and large rocks hurtling onto Mitchell's land. Federal mining regulations should have required ongoing efforts to restore the land, but according to Mitchell, that clearly hasn't been happening. Quote, I've had concerns for years about why the Department of Mines, now named Virginia Energy, let the company keep going like they did and made no repairs, Mitchell says. It ought to have been reclaimed years ago. I couldn't understand why they let them continue on and not repair anything. They have been up there for years and made very little repairs. I don't understand why the state lets them do that. In December of 2020, Civil LLC had informed Virginia Energy that it would be suspending reclamation on Aili Branch and neighboring mines until the arrival of more favorable weather in the spring of 2021. But state inspection reports indicate that the only work that occurred on site until at least November of 2021 was a partial effort to address an outstanding sediment control violation in July 2021. Virginia Energy cited civil for numerous additional violations during this time, but even though mining companies are required to reclaim disturbed lands as they proceed with mining, it was more than six months after civil suspended operations before the state issued a citation to the company for falling behind. Typically, financially sound coal companies operate mines every month of the year. For Appalachian Voices, Willie Dodson, who has been monitoring those developments, the situation at Aili Branch is a red flag. Quote, the prolonged period of idleness on the Aili Branch mine complex raises concerns about Civil LLC's capacity to properly and expeditiously clean up black jewels mess, Dodson says. In February 2022, Mitchell reported hearing machinery up the mountainside from his home, indicating that Civil LLC had resumed efforts to reclaim the 400 acres of disturbed land it obtained from Black Jewel. In October 2020, the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection revoked three Revelation Energy permits near Kanawha State Forest. Revelation, a Black Jewel affiliate, had made no progress in transferring the permits to other companies following its bankruptcy, and the mines had years of chronic water pollution and safety issues, both under Revelation and a previous owner, Tom Scholl. But one year later, the DEP attempted to reinstate those permits in order to transfer them back to Tom Scholl, who this time assumed the mines under the banner of Keystone West Virginia LLC. This new enterprise is distinct on paper from Scholl's other company, Keystone Development, which has a long history of violations, including from when it previously held these same permits before transferring them to Revelation in 2013. Through Keystone Development, Scholl's storied history of non-compliance also includes years of ongoing violations on the adjacent KD2 mine. The DEP forced KD2 to cease coal mining ahead of schedule and required the company to begin reclamation in 2016 after a successful campaign by Kanawha Forest Coalition to expose the mine's impacts. Quote, These three permits are old permits with outstanding environmental violations that were never repaired or remedied by Mr. Scholl or his company, says Barney Fraser, whose home sits on a ridge overlooking one of the mountaintop removal sites Keystone assumed responsibility for. We have no faith that Mr. Scholl will properly finish the reclamation on those three permits because he never did begin to originally when they were his to correct. Fraser is part of the Kanawha Forest Coalition, a local forest watchdog group that recently filed a citizen complaint with the U.S. Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement over the transfer, along with the Sierra Club and Appalachian Voices. OSMRE rejected the complaint in part because coal isn't being actively mined at those sites. Quote, We're down there fairly regularly, says Chad Cordell, one of the founders of the Kanawha Forest Coalition. We did a site visit with DEP a few months ago. Things have not changed very much. 
They were already years behind in reclamation. They'd put in a little bit of effort just to keep DEP off their backs. When the bankruptcy happened, not much changed because not much was happening anyway. They just stopped pretending to do anything. Doug Wood, a board member of the Kanawha State Forest Foundation, a nonprofit organization devoted to protecting, promoting, and preserving the forest, as well as a member of the Kanawha Forest Coalition, has taken part in several citizen inspections of the mine sites through the course of ownership shifts. Those inspections found a number of serious issues, including acid mine drainage, landslips, and sedimentation. Quote, since the bankruptcy, it has maintained its horrible status, in my opinion, says Wood, who worked in water resources for the West Virginia state government for decades. Every place we could put a sensor, conductivity, a measure of pollution in water, was high. Anytime water collected anywhere, there was acid production. The lack of reclamation has led to off-site impacts. Rush Creek carries a majority of runoff from the three revelation permits, Cordell says. They pretty much killed the right fork. Conductivity levels are through the roof. pH is out of whack. The situation reflects the failure of the entire system, according to Cordell. DEP could have stepped in and said, we're going to throw everything we have at revelation until they get this work done, he says. Companies know they can shirk responsibilities for cleaning up these sites for as long as they can get away with it, or until they're ready to throw in the towel. Clearly, the whole system is a failure, and it's at or approaching a breaking point. It is a mess. According to Morgan, regulators in West Virginia, Kentucky, and Virginia wanted to get the Black Jewel and Revelation permits transferred to other companies so the permits wouldn't end up forfeited and add to the burden of stressed state mine reclamation systems. But as the coal industry continues a rapid decline, Morgan says those systems will only face greater strains. The overwhelming and inescapable trajectory of the coal mining industry in the United States is downward, he said. There's no reason that trend line won't continue to go down. He argues that state agencies need to come to terms with that. What can state regulators do at this point, asked Morgan. They need to enforce SMCRA regulations, especially the contemporaneous reclamation regulation, so that the amount of land disturbed on a site at any given time is as small as possible. That way, when the permit is inevitably abandoned to the state, the state has the least amount of work possible required. The industry's decline has exposed fundamental problems with the mine cleanup system, according to environmental advocates. What's happening highlights a weakness in the way that SMCRE was written, Morgan says. It's become very clear that one of the fundamental premises of the SMCRA regulatory structure is that there will always be a coal mining industry, that there will be new permits issued and new mines opening. The structure relies on that promise of new money coming into the system. It's not prepared to deal with a situation where no new money is coming in and a rapidly increasing number of permits are being abandoned. In this situation, each new mine permit is a future risk. States need to think about think hard about issuing new permits that only add to the reclamation burden that will eventually fall on them, he says. Morgan notes that one discovery from Black Jewel's inability to find new owners for many of its mines is that surety companies, which put up reclamation bonds, see the writing on the wall. They're aware that if all they're doing is paying out bonds and no one is putting money down for new bonds, well, that isn't a sustainable business model, Morgan says. There are only so many bonds those companies can afford to pay out before they are, they are at risk of bankruptcy. According to ACLC's Cromer Mining Companies that had expressed interest in buying Black Jewel properties testified during court hearings that surety companies' reluctance to back new bonds played a role in why the coal companies weren't able to move forward with permit transfers. The surety company was demanding 100% collateral, Cromer says. Coal mining has become too high risk for bonding companies that are looking at huge liabilities. It just doesn't make sense anymore. So what happens when reclamation costs are higher than the bonds and other resources available? It is inescapable that there is going to need to be supplemental money to pay for reclamation, likely from the federal government, Morgan says. In the meantime, industry and regulators have made the mess, but communities are bearing the burden and living with the impacts. 
And here's a piece from Daniel Rachel, and this is published at nrdc.org. Summer brings warm weather, plenty of sun, and at least in non-COVID times, the happy cries of school children released for summer break. This year, it also brought sobering numbers on our worsening national bee losses, along with a few glimmers of hope in states stepping up action to protect bee and pollinator populations from toxic pesticides. First, the bad news. Just in time for National Pollinator Week, the Bee Informed Partnership released their yearly bee colony loss numbers. Like last year, the annual colony loss rate ticked up, making this past year the second worst on record, with beekeepers losing an average of 45.5% of their hives. Numbers in many states were even worse, with loss rates in New York and New Jersey at 54% and 48% respectively, making it their second worst year, too. While the chemical industry has long fought an informational war to deflect blame to other valid causes of bee loss, such as climate change or parasites, only one cause overlaps with the sudden spike that began 15 years ago, namely the sudden uptick in the use of highly toxic neonicotinoid or neonic pesticides. In addition to the mountain of evidence now linking neonics with bee losses, research also has shown the problem is much bigger than bees. Neonic pollute the environment on a vast scale, showing up in half or more of U.S. streams, as well as in the bodies of half the American people. And due to neonics' potency as neurotoxins, even small levels, such as those frequently seen in water in New York, New Jersey, and across the country, have been linked to losses of birds, the collapse of fisheries, and birth defects in white-tailed deer. Neonic pollution and its impacts are so widespread that many scientists now liken it to DDT and a second silent spring, while health experts are increasingly raising alarms about neonics' human health harms. Fortunately, while the EPA still seems stuck in neutral from a Trump-area determination on neonics, states are now taking the lead. The happiest news comes from Maine, where the legislature passed a bill last month that will prohibit use of neonics in residential landscapes except for invasive species treatment. While Connecticut, Maryland, Massachusetts, and Vermont have all prohibited over-the-counter neonic products, the pine tree state is the first to go a step further by also clamping down on chemicals spread by landscapers and hired pest control applicators, a huge chunk of the neonic problem. Further down the Atlantic coast, other exciting developments followed. The New Jersey legislature appears poised to become the second state to ban most non-agricultural neonic uses. While the New York Senate overwhelmingly passed the Birds and Bees Protection Act, the New York bill targets not only non-ag uses, but also neonic-treated corn, soybean, and wheat seeds, which account for the single largest and most widespread use of neonics in the Empire State, but provide no overall net income benefit to farmers according to a recent massive report from Cornell University. While neither bill achieved full passage in June, both are still very much alive and will be up for consideration again when the weather turns colder. With the security of our bees, our food, our ecosystems, and our health in jeopardy, the question must not be whether to rein in rampant destructive neonic use, but how quickly we can do it. The model developing across the U.S. doesn't seem to follow the European Union's complete outdoor neonic ban, but rather target the dumbest neonic uses those uses which, ironically, account for the vast bulk of neonics contaminating our environment, but provide no economic benefits to users or are easily replaced with safer alternatives. And finally, a piece published at grist.org, and this is written by Lena Tran. The pair was hardly dressed like typical farmers, but this was no typical farm. Sporting a white hazmat suit and respirators, Shelley Stanley and Richard Silliboy lugged five-gallon jugs of water towards the bushy plots of hemp, each 30-by-30-foot 30 30 patch a stark sign of order in the otherwise overgrown field. It was a warm September day in Limestone, a small town on the edge of the main Canada border, and the pair struggled to breathe 
in the head-to-toe protective gear. Stanley, a founder of the environmental organization Upland Grassroots, recalls telling Silliboy, vice chief of the Aroostook Band of Micmac Nation, quote, This will be worth it someday. For Stanley and Silliboy, the focus was not so much the hemp they were growing as what it was doing. Their farm, once part of the Loring Air Force Base, is also a Superfund site, an area so polluted it's marked high priority for federal cleanup. Later, when the Aroostook Band of Micmacs took over the site's ownership, they found its soil was rife with purr and polyfluoral alkyl substances, better known as PFAS, cancer-causing compounds that are so difficult to break down, they're commonly known as forever chemicals. Because of their ability to bind to proteins, PFAS tend to bioaccumulate, building up in the soil, water, and even human bodies. Under typical environmental conditions, they can persist for hundreds, even thousands of years. But there is hope at Loring. In 2020, researchers discovered that the Micmac's hemp plants were successfully sucking PFAS out of the contaminated soil. This practice, known as phytoremediation, could guide farmers across the country who have had to shut down after discovering their soil is tainted with a ubiquitous class of chemicals. Sarah Nason, one of the project's lead researchers from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, called their results conservatively promising. Other researchers see the potential too. David Huff, a senior scientist at the environmental consulting firm Nutter & Associates, Inc., said at the end of the day, the data support phytoremediation as a viable approach and definitely established proof of concept. PFAS were once considered to be human-made miracle compounds. Due to their oil and water-repelling properties, they were long used in all kinds of products, from firefighting foam to stain-resistant carpets to nonstick pans. They've been linked to a host of health problems, including kidney and testicular cancer, liver damage, and suppressed immunity. Although some companies have voluntarily decided to phase out the use of PFAS in their products and packaging, the chemicals are already ubiquitous, pervading farms and military sites alike. In states like Maine and New Mexico, where PFAS have been detected in soil, milk, and vegetables, they have been traced to biosolids, byproducts from sewage treatment plants that are sometimes used as fertilizers. In former military bases like Loring, the main source is thought to be firefighting foam. Indeed, part of the land that the Micmac obtained in 2009 was previously used as a firefighting testing area. Loring has undergone years of cleanup since the base closed. In 2007, the Environmental Protection Agency deemed it ready for reuse, albeit with limits due to contamination that persists at the site. According to the EPA, the Air Force has confirmed the presence of PFAS in the groundwater, surface water, and soil, and promised future study. The tribe sought the land for economic development, but is unhealthy, Silliboy said. It is the latest in what he sees as the Micmac's long history of obtaining poor land. He pointed to reservations on swamps and steep hills, land where no one can garden. Quote, when the tribe is given any property for reservation land, it is not prime property, he said. So when Stanley, seeking a site to test hemp's ability to pull PFAS out of the ground, approached him about a partnership, he was eager to work together. Protecting the land is part of the Micmac beliefs, said Chief Edward Peter Paul of the Aroostook Band in a report on the project. Anything we can do to contribute to making the environment better, we want to be a part of. In the spring of 2019, the Micmac Nation, Upland Grassroots, and their research partners began their experiment. They collected data on three plots. Others didn't survive a drought. Two years later, they reported early signs of success. The hemp lowered PFAS in the soil. Phytoremediation is an attractive option for cleaning land of certain types of contaminants because it is relatively affordable and limits disturbances to soil. In addition to PFAS, plants have been used to leach lead from abandoned mines and pesticides from retired orchards. While people have long used plants to help clean soil and water, the term was coined in 1994 by Rutgers University biologist Ilya Raskin. Raskin's early experiments involved using mustard to extract heavy metal pollutants half a mile from Ukraine's Chernobyl nuclear power plant, 
which unleashed catastrophic amounts of radioactive material when a reactor melted down in the mid-1980s. Hemp is a good candidate for phytoremediation because it grows fast across much of the United States. Its roots are deep and profuse, the better to uptake pollutants from the soil. Stanley believes their successes in using hemp to remove persistent contaminants like PFAS holds promise for many other farmers. Before hemp's widespread legalization in 2018, quote, huge companies could excavate or do these very intrusive processes to deal with polluted land, she said. But there was nothing the layperson could really do to clean land. Nason, the researcher with Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, agreed the practice has potential, though she was more cautiously optimistic. It's a possibility, but I think we still have a lot to learn, she said. It's still unclear how much of the chemicals hemp can remove. Although the Loring Project successfully extracted some PFAS, plenty remained in the soil. Also unclear is how many rounds of hemp planting it would take to return levels to a, quote, safe baseline, something that doesn't technically exist yet without national standards from the EPA. The team lacked good control data to measure their efforts because, quote, pretty much everywhere has some amount of PFAS, Nason said. Assuming phytoremediation of PFAS breaks out of its experimental phase, it should shine in cost comparisons to other removal techniques, according to David Huff, the environmental consultant. Currently, the standard approach to PFAS cleanup involves excavating the affected soil. The cost can be astronomical. One estimate for the contaminated soil on a 100-acre dairy farm in Maine ran upwards of $25 million. Using plants, Huff said, can cost 75% less at least. That's not to say that plant-based PFAS removal comes cheap exactly. Soil testing can cost anywhere from $250 to $600 per sample. And for any given field, samples at multiple points across the field are needed to measure progress, especially as PFAS levels can vary from spot to spot within the same parcel of land. Huff, who has studied various grasses and trees' ability to extract PFAS, said plants work best when the contaminant levels are lower and the cleanup area is larger, around two acres or more. By that measure, most farms would be considered large projects. And size isn't the only limitation. Phytoremediation takes more time compared to other approaches. Lee Penniman, co-director and manager of the community farm Soul Fire Farm in New York State, wrote about using plants like geranium or sunflowers to clean lead-contaminated soil in her book, Farming While Black. It takes at least one year and very careful monitoring, so it is not for everyone, she wrote. After the first year, if tests still indicate high lead levels, it may take another round of planting, or two or three. Developers might prefer the expensive, quicker route of excavation over long wait. But faced with steep costs, small farmers may have no choice besides a plant-based approach. For farmers hoping to put plants to work, there are other challenges ahead. If a farm's soil is polluted, odds are the water will be too. That was the case at Loring, so the EPA doesn't allow the use of the water supply. She and Silliboy had to truck in water each week for their hemp, which limited how much they could grow. Some states are already addressing these needs. The Maine Department of Environmental Protection, for example, installs filters for farm wells that exceed certain level of contamination. Future studies will also need to develop guidelines for how people should dispose of the PFAS-laden plants once their job is done. That could entail drying first to reduce the sheer mass, Huff said. The key is safely discarding waste to avoid creating another mess. Meanwhile, the work at Loring continues. A new water tank will help Stanley and Silliboy plant more hemp this year. The research effort has gained a new partner, a chemical engineer from the University of Virginia interested in using enzymes to break down PFAS. The Aroostook Band of the Micmacs is considering plans to build a campground once the land proves clean. The woods have grown back over the years and run with bears, moose, and deer. Although Silliboy said state officials have recently cautioned against consuming wild venison, There's PFAS in it. In our rush for what some people call progress, we are killing ourselves. And when I say we, I mean the greedy bastards that run the corporations that whose whose God is the dollar 
and whose uh, whole goal is to make more of those dollars and to hell with the consequences. If it, if it makes them money, then the consequences are externalities, as I mentioned before. There's something that the, the companies don't have to deal with. The companies that produce PFAS do not have to deal with these cleanup costs. That's the problem, that in addition to the companies um, being emboldened and allowed to go ahead and produce what they want, uh, regardless of the consequences, the reason they're allowed to do that is the government doesn't care. The government supports them. The government doesn't restrict them. The government doesn't restrict the use of new chemicals um, with you know rare exceptions. The government doesn't require proof that some chemical is not harmful. It doesn't require extensive studies. It may require the company that's creating the chemical to self-report uh, that they did some basic study that it's not harmful. And this is how things are allowed to be used again and again and again, which later we determine have various levels of harm. It's a terrible, terrible system. And we individually and collectively are paying the price. Who's not paying the price? The capitalists, the people who produce the products that ultimately damage and kill other people. They're rarely paying those prices. That'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can check out all those back episodes at youcantbeneutral.com. You can also listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. Now, a moment of zen. Thanks for listening. i
solution. What's your solution?